0: i'm chris i'm jimmy and i'm jim and this is Topic Lord, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed chris would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug um
1: sure i
0: am a
1: musician and what am i plugging i'm an 8-bit musician sometimes and i go by the name of Beek, b-e-e-k and well i did come out with a um chip disk, I don't know, a couple months ago, sometime during this pandemic. Uh, yes, it's called The Lost Backups,
0: like I announced on the last episode or the one that the
1: episode that I recorded.
0: Uh, and and uh, Jimmy, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Hi,
2: my name is Jimmy Rimmer. Uh, I go by the nickname Rimbo sometimes. Uh, I'm going to plug a 21-year-old song and it's currently on Spotify as the 20-year-old uh, anniversary edition, which is a lie because it's 21 years old and I only got it out a few weeks ago. It's k red Elite Demo Music. <laughs> That's Elite 31337. And it actually took third place to one of Chris's songs at SB99. So oh, wow. Over Over the many, many years since then, it's the one song I ever wrote that I just can't stop listening to. I love it. I wrote it and I still sometimes can't believe it. There's my plug.
0: You loved it so much. You—it's the only song you put on Spotify.
2: It's not the only song. There's one other. It's, okay. But it was a collaboration with a friend, and he's been uh, taking all the royalties for it, which is fine. It's music business is hard.
0: <laughs> Musicians deserve royalties. Yes. Programmers don't need music royalties. Yeah, all right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I just found it. KRAD 31337
1: 3, 3, Demo music 20-year anniversary edition. Oh, that's cool. Album art,
2: too. Classic font. Epic. It's literally the exact same song, and I just threw some compression on it. Yes. <laughs> Yummy. All right. So do, you have a, do you have a fourth guest here? What's, who's this? That would be Annie. She may pop in from time to time. Okay. She is six years old. She is my second child, my... First child is 15 and is six foot four. I am 5'10". He likes to stand <laughs> next to me and look down at me just because he can.
0: I would do that too if I were six foot four. Comes do with you the can territory.
2: Give me at anytime you like.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Are we ready to start on some topics?
2: Let's start some topics.
0: Dive in. Uh, Chris, your topic is 22 years later, I'm able to answer Rimbo's question he asked me on the way to Westside 98. What is an bow? yeah um it means bishop in spanish
2: (laughs) so how did this come up (laughs) (laughs) we were driving through san luis obispo on the way from san diego to wherever it was
1: and it's funny because that was the first time i've ever taken a trip like that far and just like any to norcal and i'm from born and raised san diego so it's crazy because i ended up going to uc santa barbara to for my you know for call for my bachelor's and um I became very familiar with like those rolling golden Hills in the one Oh one, because my wife is from like North Bay area. So Marin County. So we would make that drive a bunch, like just driving up and down the coast of California. I became super familiar with like that area. And, but back then on that drive and I remember we were going through San Luis Obispo and I just remember Jimmy being like, what is an Obispo?
0: And I was just like, Oh damn. (laughs) And, and so, uh, Barbara is a barber, right? <laughs> um, Barbarella,
1: also. No, um, Barbara. Okay, all right, yeah. It's actually a, like a patron and, saint and of arms. Saint Fay. Saint Fay. You know, well, Fay means
0: faith in Spanish. Okay, that probably explains that.
1: Yeah. And I think Jimmy was asking me because he knows that I'm, you know, half Mexican. I think, I'm pretty sure, I mean, he knew. And so I was like, oh, maybe this, you know. Chris, man, probably speak Spanish. And I did, like, half, like, but I did, like, I have, I always jokingly say to people, like, well, I'm half Mexican, so we're like, I half speak Spanish. Like, I half learned it, but, like, sadly.
0: But not at the time, not the half that had Bishop
1: in it. Yeah, that was like, yeah. I, I, like, know all these words for, like, musical terms, like, and stuff, but I don't know how to say, like, mop, you know? Like, this is, like, context-based, like, it's just holes in my vocabulary. So, uh, yeah, I didn't know Bishop at the time, but um, Obispo, Obispo, San Luis. So, there's a bishop named named San Luis, I guess. Obispo.
2: Yeah, San San Luis Obispo. It was literally, it was not because he was Mexican. It was literally just a, one of the many random stupid things that escapes my lips when I see something <laughs> and I have to comment on it. <laughs> I mean, I assumed it was a guy named Luis Obispo. Oh, I see.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're from Texas, yeah. right? Like, there's all sorts of Spanish name stuff there, right?
2: Yeah, but I'm from Amarillo. And first <laughs> off, from the fact that I pronounce it that way, that is the correct way to pronounce it. Now, you know, this should be Amarillo. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yellow. But it's, no, it's Amarillo. And this is the whitest part of Texas. This is basically Kansas. I don't
1: think I've ever been, I've been, I've been to a lot of Texas cities actually by now on tour and stuff, but I've, I don't think I've ever been to
2: Amarillo. Yeah, I much.
0: So if you're in a diner in Amarillo and you say the word Amarillo, does like, there is there like a record scratch and everybody
2: goes quiet? Yeah. <laughs> like
0: Frisco or...
2: Pretty sure. Yeah. Suddenly everybody starts looking at you and there's this uncomfortable silence and you start thinking, uh, maybe you should pay the check. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, actually Amarillo is a very, very friendly town. I, guys, I was I was just talking about the color yellow. It's nothing to do with you. It's so it's an important color. Yellow is. Without it, we would we have Big Bird. What color would Big Bird be? Blue. You know, I would watch a blue Big Bird. That'd be fine.
1: But then the Cookie Monster. Well, apparently,
2: the Dutch Big Bird is
0: blue. But <laughs> yeah, they could be brothers. So we should talk about uh, West Side Ninety Eight and demo parties in general. So does it t- do the topic lords? audience know about the demo scene are we some of them do i would imagine but like let's uh let's uh, let's give
2: them a rundown so the demo scene came out of the pirate scene of video game piracy of this commodore 64 and the amiga in the 90s and so yes it came out of piracy and it started out with people just advertising their bbs's with increasingly clever
0: uh, like a little graphical animation that they would put in front of the games.
2: Yeah. The demos would show up in front of the games. And oh, did you talk to me? so people would put these demos in front of their games that they'd cracked. And then they were showing off how good their coding skills were. And soon the demos themselves became the reason for all
0: of it. Yeah. People like people decided they wanted, they were more interested in the graphical animations than they were in like cracking and distributing video games.
2: And then the PC came about, and it, of course, its graphics and sound hardware was somewhat modest compared to the Amiga, but it had much better CPUs and eventually, and much better business model. Mm-hmm. And eventually, that's where the piece, thats where the demo scene started to explode, particularly when Future Crew released Unreal, and that just got everybody into it. That I knew. That's when it went mainstream no, and no, got no name. relation
0: to Unreal Engine but by, uh, by Tim Sweeney.
2: Yes. Unreal by Future Crew was 1991. This is long before the Unreal game engine.
0: Right. So, wait, and then demo scenes and then demo parties. Right. Yes, people would... This this happened like for years, this would happen in, in Europe, mostly Scandinavia and Americans were like, I would like to do this but I don't want to fly to to Europe to go to these parties. I have to fly to Montreal. Yeah, that happened once. Actually, that happened twice, but I only did it once. Same. Went to Nade 98. And that was in Canada, right? So, that
1: was some Mm -hmm. of the... Wasn't that one of the first North American demo parties?
2: Yeah. It was in a high school gym in Montreal. You go to this beautiful city with this amazing architecture, and then you go hide in a high school gym for three days.
0: Yeah. Well, I was, what, 16? I was just the right age to not give a shit about the amazing city and architecture. Like, I... Don't think I saw the outside of that gym for the entirety of the event. And the rest of the time, I was just worried about like, how to tell the bus driver where to go, where I wanted to go.
2: (laughs) They do mostly speak English there.
0: Not the bus driver. Oh, dear. (laughs) But he could read a map. Um, Westside was one of a series of demo parties that was basically held at somebody's house in California. And those were like very small events where all the locals would come around. It was a lot like a BBS meetup, honestly.
1: Should have called it like a demo hangout, not really a demo party. (laughs) I guess it's a
0: demo kickback. And in fact, I think I I remember like there was, I I forget, but I remember being very like frustrated by this. There was like a demo party database that would not accept these entries when we tried to add them because (laughs) they were too small to count. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, actually, that's how I—I I actually lost the source to Krad Elite demo music, and it had to. It was actually SB ninety nine. So I guess SB ninety nine met the threshold. Will Will dreamed big. He wanted to make that like the American demo party. Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe because it had a second year, it seemed more. It had more clout. You know,
2: there were three years. There was SB ninety eight, ninety nine, and Spoo. Spoo. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, sb 00, we, we he called it Spoo. Wait, I feel like I missed that. <laughs> I, think I don't were... think you missed any of them. You were literally right down the street.
0: <laughs> I think it was 97, 98, 99, and then the last one ended up not happening because he tried to book the venue and it was already booked or something like that. Okay, maybe that.
2: Speaking of Will, he's uh married living... I think it's up in your area, Chris.
1: He's from Novato, which is where my wife is from.
2: Yeah, he's from Novato, but no, he was living in England for a while. Oh, okay. And then New York, and he met his wife in New York.
0: Uh, so, so Chris, you mentioned... Um... Tell us about going to assembly 2010.
1: Oh yeah. Well, and also just to get to some of the things that happened at like the bigger demo parties, right. Which is like a bunch of people, like hundreds or thousands of people, yeah. you know, and then there's like, everyone's going to hang in a lot of chaos and then some like different events, like minor events, just different kind of what, I don't know, people are showing off their stuff. But then like, I mean, okay. So I'll describe assembly 2010, which is probably way past what many demo seniors would have considered the heyday because like, okay, it's in a big like ice skating rink arena in like Helsinki. And there's like thousands, like the floor is, you know, they covered the ice obviously. And, uh, but it was kind of humid in there actually because of that. But, um, there's like thousands of tables with like people playing games, just all gamers. So it was like 90% gamers. It was just all games. Like just all like first person should whatever, all the different. And, um, and then upstairs, like often like a little corner is like the demo scene, like section. Um, <laughs> so I'm guessing that it morphed over the years uh, <laughs> into, into something different. But so I only, I mainly hung out. I mean, I walked the floor a couple of times, um, but I mainly hung out in like the demo scene section and I was like traveling with my wife. We ended up traveling. We traveled for like a year at all, like at once. So this is like the beginning, kind of the beginning of our travels. Um, but, um, and the demo scene section was, there's a bunch of tables and people brought their computers and had different things set up and there's coders, right. And then graphics, people, musicians, and just people hanging out. I just always remember that code, those like group of code. Anyone who's a coder was like glued to their computer because they were trying to finish up the last like bits of like the demo entry or whatever that they were doing for their like demo group <laughs> submission. There. Like they were just screwed. Like they all, they all just were stressed out and everyone's just walking around like, mm, yeah, you know, I just got, I guess, you know, I had like entered like a chip tune or something. Like I was all just cruising. And then there was like outside, like down the ways a little bit, um, you'd leave the arena and walk kind of through like a semi-wooded area and ended up with this like cool little like, woody woodland naturey hangout spot that everyone was calling booze embly or like where the real assembly is and it was just a bunch of fins drinking pretty strong beer and hanging out and the sun would go down at like 11 p.m or 12 a.m like you'd be like wait it's like i feel like it's getting sunset and then you look and it's like midnight because it was in the summer yeah yeah and everyone was just hanging out over there and then yeah eventually it all kind of leads up to the apex which is like showing all the entries. So there's, you know, music entries where you just listen to all the songs that are, are in different categories, like 8-bit chiptunes and 32-bit and just open, and, you know, open-ended, no restrictions and mod XMIT entries and a couple categories. And then, you know, the intros and, you know, 8K, 4K, 256 byte, blah, 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 all the different categories of the sizes of the intros. And then you have the bigger demos and I think maybe some games too, they kind of demoed. And then announcing all the winners and stuff. Um, I had a, I entered a chip song, which uh, they played through the wrong player and like, it totally screwed the sound. It didn't sound like it. Cause it wasn't using the filters, like it filters that no, I use. No. And like, they use like mod play or like some old crappy one. <laughs> they use like, I don't know what they use. Like they, no, they use like, they use like windows media no, I don't know what they use, but it, it screwed it up. And, uh, um, but you know, it was still cool to just do it there. And I, it was just cool. Cause like assembly was like, you know, where future crew had all these epic demos released and stuff. So, I was just stoked to be there, no know, having known the history of like Finland and the finished part of the demo scene and their contributions. And, you know, so it was pretty cool.
2: Hey, there's a question, Chris, for your chiptunes. Are you still using Impulse Tracker? Are you using like Impulse Tracker in a DOS box? or using Schism Tracker? Are you, like, I using use Schism um, and I use it on what a PC,
1: but now I recently um, figured out like that I can just plug because I mainly use Mac. And so I just figured out that I can plug in my old like PC keyboard into my Mac and like... And then if I use Schism Checker, like all the yeah. keys work perfectly. So <laughs> pretty awesome.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually just abandoned the Mac after 15 years of being pretty much Mac exclusive. So... And what was... The, why was that? Uh, cause... Well, I'm a laptop user primarily. And for the past five or six years, I just... I, I've been using the same laptop since 2014. And, um... Looking at all the new MacBook Pros coming out, I I just didn't like them. I hate the I hated the keyboards. I I'm like, why do we still not have a touch screen on these things? The touch bar is daft, and uh, really, macOS Catalina was the final straw. I mean, if I were an iOS, if I were an iPhone user, I'd probably be interested in what's coming out in macOS 11, but none of it appeals to me. And then I'm sitting here looking at the Microsoft Surface and saying, look at this cool thing. Why can't they do this? And between the tremendous amount of just bugs and problems I had with Catalina, it's like, okay, yeah, I really have no more reason to stick with this. And then that seven-year-old laptop finally died. It died fantastically. It actually would take out the entire network if you turned it on. Wow. Oh, impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. It just, it not only did it stop working, but it would shut everything else down too. So something at the hardware layer one just nuking the entire Wi Fi. So I am now the proud and happy owner of a Microsoft Surface Book 3. It is fantastic. I can play Skyrim on it. I can load Cakewalk again. I can <laughs> load Schism Tracker. Awesome. And, I do not miss Apple at all. Of course, I still have use it for my job, but... <laughs> I got my first Mac in like
0: 2017 and I have really not been impressed. Like the hardware... Like I, I, I think I would have liked... Like I, I really probably what I should have done is gotten an old, like a used Mac, previous previous generation MacBook because like the escape key is really what gets it for me is like there's... No- yes. <laughs>
2: Put the escape key on the touch bar. Oh like,
0: God! Like what you get? What you get instead of an escape key is like you know you try to restart, and then there's a prompt that comes up on the screen that says, "Are you sure you want to restart? Yes or no?" And then the yes or no also appears on the touch bar, so you, f- you fucking click on the buttons on the screen, or you can <laughs> look down. Oh, okay, I also see an interface down there. That's the trade-off for the for that.
1: Some developer on his way out was like, he who laughs last, fucking bastards. I've seen it written as a bullet point, actually, that says like on the newer one, that's like, has physical escape key. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) not a feature you wouldn't think you'd be seeing in 2020. Like that, you know, if you like were fast forwarding seeing in the future in like 98 and you saw that, I think you would just shudder. And
2: the other thing that actually is WSL windows services for Linux which literally you can install linux and run linux on top of windows like not in a vm not like dual boot but literally you can download ubuntu two twenty point oh four 20.04 as an app and launch it under windows and it's seamless and so far from what i can tell darn near flawless that seems pretty good so for the nerd for my nerd side, my Unix Geek side, it's totally right in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh all right, so that's uh
0: that's what's an obispo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's what's an obispo plus. Uh would you like to talk about the next topic? I wanna to talk about why Starflight is the greatest PC game ever made. And tell us about Starflight. So Set your way back sh- machine to 1986. I don't know if you guys were even born then. Okay, you were born. Uh, <laughs> 1986. This. So first off, if you, you did not buy a PC for games in 1986, and you know you were either on an Apple, a Commodore, or a Nintendo. This is the NES time. So, and Starflight came out as a PC exclusive. So. Right out of the bat, we we're doing something weird. Number, f- number one, it used the multicolor, 16 color CGA mode. Now, CGA, out of the box, gave you two modes. You could either do black, white, cyan, and magenta, or black, yellow, green, and red.
0: Oh, uh, I <laughs> shudder to, um, to remember. <laughs> oh, we're seeing nostalgia for that now. There are indie games using that palette these days.
2: Right. But check this out. If you had the composite conductor with it and right. have your resolution, you could get you could get 16 colors at a time. In fact, you could get as many as 64 colors at a time if you were smart about it. And it used that multicolor mode, which meant when I tried to run it on my VGA box, I actually had, there, had, there was an EA patch where you had to go in and hack the .com file, the, the actual bootable executable, and change it so that it would work with an EGA or better adapter. Right. With the crappy four-color mode. But, yeah, so, right out of the bat, we're talking about some serious hacking. Number two, the entire thing fit on a single two-sided 360K floppy disk. And yet, inside this, it had an entire half a galaxy. Right, right. the way right. they did this was all they stored was an algorithm to generate the entire galaxy and a single seed. And then when you installed it to your hard drive, it ran the algorithm, generated the universe. But this meant you had to keep your install disk because if you ever messed up and wanted to start over, you literally had to reinstall from the original floppies to begin with. Oh, interesting. And it was a pretty you know, right out of the gate, we were, you know, I was sold on this game because it's a go out, explore, conquer, see the world, train your crew, Star Trek. This is hard science fiction. These guys really knew their science. You can learn about all the different elements and, you know, you guys remember Star Control 2. Star Control 2 stole all of its best game elements, other than the music, from Starflight. Yeah, no, I loved Star
0: Control 2. So I, uh, I imagine, like I imagine, going back to Starflight and thinking, like, oh yeah, this is like Star Control two, but worse.
2: Yeah, it's no, actually, it's like Star Control two, but better
0: because, oh, okay,
2: like it actually, impl- like the landings on the planets are so much better in Starflight than they are in Star Control two. Okay, the ship to ship combat was better in Star Control two because it was Ford and Reich's wonderful little Archon game engine for that. So all of this. To start out with, you know, this is a seminal game on the IBM PC. This basically showed how to do a space RPG. It had this amazingly clever tricks to do more with less. But that's not what made it, I think, the greatest game ever. What made it the greatest game ever? Two things. I'm going to get to the second by getting to the first telling you about the first. The first is, you remember Bioshock is this game where you're going around and exploring and you kind of discover the story as you go along. It's not really spoon-fed to you. Mm -hmm. You just kind of find pieces, you find a recording of somebody saying something and over on another level, you'll find another recording of somebody referencing that other person and talking about them and you see this history of the world. Starflight did that and it did that before I think any other game did that where you're going through the galaxy, building up your ship, getting going around, talking to the other alien races, and you're finding bits of the story as you go along. And what you're finding out, you're finding out that you're the last, the, the only surviving colony that survived, escaping a dying Earth. And what you find out is that pretty much every planet with life, core of the galaxy, working its way out, is dead. And that line marking the d- dying planets is moving. You're on a timeline in this game. It's a pretty long timeline. D- you don't have to rush, but there's a timeline. Whatever is wiping everything out is going to wipe everything out. So you're playing this game and every time you, and you're going around and you're landing on planets, and if you land on planets and find the ancients, that's great because you la- find the ancients. And there's 20 units of fuel there. It's like, oh yeah, I got 20 units of fuel because I found the Asians. and that's a lot of fuel. That can get you from one star to three stars over. That, that'll get you get you flying for a while. Now here's where the cool thing comes. This is all pretty standard gameplay. Build a ship, build a crew, get flying, keep going. And wow, oh cool, there's also a story. But what Starflight did that I've really only seen in a couple of other games is take something that you take for granted from a gameplay standpoint and do something with it to make a point, to tell a story. Tell a story in a way that could only be done in the form of a game. Turns out the reason everything is blowing up is because the ancients are blowing everything up and the reason they're blowing everything up is self-defense. And the reason that self-defense is they're being used as fuel, guys when you go to those ancient temples and you find 20 units of fuel, that's 20 life forms. And it's positively mind blowing. And then it's got that same sort of moral quandary after you find this out, where in order to save your species, you still have to burn more of the ancients, murder and slaughter more of the ancients as fuel to go blow up this thing, this doomsday device that they're destroying all life in the galaxy with. But on the other hand, you you can understand why they're doing it. So there's this sort of, it puts you in this moral position. And when that reveal hits you, and you suddenly realize that you have been complicit in the crime the entire game long, it hits you in a way that I've never really been hit in a book or a movie. The closest I've ever gotten outside of games was uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, a horror story by... Um, Oh, uh, what's his name? You know, the guy, the Chithulu Mythos... Lovecraft. Lovecraft, yeah. A Shadow of Innsmouth by Lovecraft. You're with him all the way and then he just hits you with this BAM at the very end. It's a great story if you ever have a chance. It's one of the few actually good horror stories I've ever read. Legitimately freaky. And uh, that's the way Starflight is when you find out, oh my god, I've been slaughtering these guys this whole time. So, that was powerful as a storytelling thing. So on top of the fact that this was highly rated, a fun game, even today to play on top of the fact that they had this brilliant technology on top of the fact that this was influential to all to future game design. There's this story that here we are um, 25 years later, 30 years. How how long was 1986 ago? 34 years. Yeah. 34 years. Man. So
0: diegetically, do the ancients like look like fuel canisters? Like what? What's happening there? They look like crystals. Okay. All right. Okay, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, hard sci-fi where an alien race doesn't necessarily look like what you would consider a life form.
0: Right. Right. That's neat. That's a that's a neat turn, especially in yeah 1986. That's uh, that's cool.
2: And there's there's many games today that still haven't picked up that ball and run with it yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely the exception that a game will do something interesting with, with that idea, with that sort of idea. So I um worked briefly on a Starflight sequel. I was working I, I did contract work at um Human Nature Studios, which was trying to ship the latest Toba Toejam and Arrow game at the time, and I worked for about a month, I think, on a prototype of a Starflight sequel that ended up being used to make the trailer for a crowdfunding campaign. And that 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 sort of project is really luxurious in that you don't really have to worry about bug fixes. Like if something breaks, you just, they just they'll just run it again and use the footage where it doesn't break. <laughs> wow. Sounds fun. A forgiving process. Yeah, exactly. And when the campaign started, I tweeted about it saying like, hey, I worked on the prototype for this that's shown in the trailer. And I got like two retweets. I knew like, holy shit, this project is doomed. I'm sure there's an audience for it, but they're not the audience that's paying attention to video game marketing. Like, Jimmy, did you know about this campaign? I did not know about this campaign, no. Yeah, like that's that's what I'm talking about. There were probably thousands of people like you out there who would have given money in a heartbeat to fund a Starflight sequel, but just aren't like I, – I, this is a problem that I would love to figure out how to solve, especially because I just shipped a Frog Fractions sequel and Frog Fractions was a game that million, like literally millions of people played, just 2 million, but <laughs> plural – there's nothing to mm-hmm. shake a stick out of. That him. counts? That's still, Jesus, yeah. that's a lot yeah, of people. I
2: t- hey, I got the t-shirt and everything, man. I'm yeah,
0: I, and I appreciate that.
1: I want, I want a frog fractions mask. You want the, the mask.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a good idea. I should sell frog fractions. i buy the first <laughs> ones. Uh, and I just shipped a sequel to it that nobody knows about because, like, most of those people aren't, like, paying attention to every indie release. So, like, I would love to figure out how to, like, sell a video game to people who never hear about video games.
1: Right. Like it appeared, it appeared, frog factions that, I mean, that appeared on my Reddit feed, but I mean, I'm on, you know, I subscribed to gaming, which is like, I mean, it's one of the suggested ones, I guess. Yeah. How to be, so, um, you know, people's attention smaller than ever, shorter than ever and split up. And so, uh, it's an, you know, highly contested, these <laughs> are, you know,
0: inside sort of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, and then that's part of the problem too, is that like, the smartest minds in the world are currently figuring out how to make people look at ads. So oh dear. people's attentions are are in, in um are being fought over. So like little old me here where I'm trying to like get out the word with a word of mouth campaign like it's hopeless.
1: Oh I was just thinking I was just trying to look up these older games because I hadn't heard of that one because that was a little bit before my time. But I was trying to think of this other space game. That was like an edutainment game from the nineties and you could like, I remember like learning about all the different like random bot, like series, like, which is like a, you know, minor like planetoid that's in our like asteroid belt, which there was a, just a story about because it like has an ocean apparently. And it's like an asteroid, which is crazy, No, no neat. but there was some, some game, like my mom got me these edutainment games. Like I remember like, um. I got, I had where in the world is Carmen San Diego. I had Mavis Beacon teaches typing, which like I loved. And like, I like kick ass at typing. Cause <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I was all into that stuff, but there was some space one. And I just found out that there's a Reddit, there's a sub Reddit uh, called tip of my joystick. Have you, have you heard of that? <laughs>
2: It's very
0: forward of you.
1: It's just like, what was that game called again? So go to tip of my joystick and I guess you can like have people help you remember like some long lost game. It's like, you so I don't know, maybe I'm going to try to put that in and see if someone can figure out what this edutainment space game is.
0: Yeah, now I want to know. <laughs> but yeah, I guess. I- yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I, we should do it right now and hope somebody replies before we we finish recording.
1: Okay, title. Hey guys, I'm on a pod. Cast and, <laughs> and
2: we're trying to we, find the name <laughs> of the game that I played. That's
1: <laughs> old old game okay, yeah, nineties. He does. Yes, yeah, so this is. We'll get an
0: answer here. Yeah, let's, we'll get to, we'll get to the bottom of this. Yeah, by the end of the, we'll go to a couple topics and we'll check back. You know,
2: the answer is dick butts.
0: Oh, <laughs> they named a meme after that space game. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes, let's do
2: another topic. Drums
0: that you play standing up. Yes. That, so, my topic is drums that you play standing up and double-sided drums. I don't remember how I came across this, but I remember at some point discovering that uh, the Jane's Addiction drummer uses an extremely minimalist drum kit, basically just a snare drum and a hi-hat. And I just thought that was super interesting. And I, I ended up researching like uh, cocktail uh, not e- cocktail drums. Not even a bass drum? Yeah. Didn't have, he doesn't have a... I, I've had, unless I'm... I'm going to look this up now just to make sure I'm not misremembering. Okay. I'm glad you made me look this up because I'm thinking of the Violent Femmes. That sounds right. And that that drummer, I don't know about Jane's Addiction. Who knows what kind of drums they have. Uh, the Violent Femmes have um, a snare drum and a transophone apparently, which is... Uh, According to Wikipedia, a b- metal bushel basket inverted over a tom.
2: I'm looking at a picture of it here, and that is weird looking.
1: Yep. I'm trying to remember which band I saw that had tom- a tom kit
0: that was so high they hit it like jump up to hit the tom, or like it was some crazy. <laughs> 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 it was just that Blue Man Group? Was that like just a? You're you're looking at an acrobatics show that's <laughs> that's very good.
1: It's like Genesis. Damn it, I can't find it. <laughs>
0: Right, right, uh, and I was looking at like cocktail kits, which often have um, a drum that's kind of like a big cylinder with um, a bass drum head underneath, and a pedal that like raises up to to hit it. Um, and then on top is a uh, a snare drum, a, a snare drum head on the other side of the cylinder, and they both use the same resonation chamber, which. It never really occurred to me that like, that that would be possible, that, that it's really the head of the drum that kind of determines the frequency of the sounds. Jim, just auxiliarily, or, uh, wait, is that the word? Ag- auxiliarily? Oh man, okay. This is, now the podcast is about how to figure out how to pronounce... Auxiliarily, auxiliarily,
1: just um tangentially can we can i sidestep the you just reminded me because i'm like uh soundproofing a shed right now and uh, i learned that to do that you have to decrease the resonance of the walls the walls of any Mm -hmm. room are like drum heads and will resonate at usually bass frequencies but then as we all know if we well as well as musicians tend to know about overtones every and harmonics, you know, these kinds of things, um, that drums will, I mean, any kind of resonating surface is also probably going to be resonating at like higher frequencies. You can go in the shower and, you know, like sing and find that note that's like louder than all the others. And then like sing it an octave higher and that's louder than the and stuff like that. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's, the struggle is real with the walls and the soundproofing. Well, when it comes to bass frequencies, particularly. So did you measure the resonant frequency of the shed walls? I did not calculate this. But see, what I'm doing is adding like 2,500 pounds of mass to the shed via double layers of like 5 eighths sheetrock drywall. So each each four by eight piece is like 70 pounds times two. So it's like, it's a game of adding mass. And then also some other tricks there. You're adding mass, but then you're also putting stuff that converts sound pressure waves into into heat and dissipating. Yeah. So
0: it's... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, soundproofing is a huge, um, difficult process. And I think there's a lot of confusion. Maybe we can clear this up for some of our listeners. Uh, Those little foam pads that you attach to walls don't do shit for soundproofing. No, and they don't even really
1: do that much for see now if yeah they don't really do much for like but they could for treatment but that's interesting too because you have to treat like a lot of times those can be you can think of those as an Eq for your room right like oh sure you can yeah. attenuate frequencies you can you those different things have different properties. And it's funny because people don't think of the different properties. They do, oh put some egg crates on your walls and put some like also like but it's like what are the properties? Did you like measure what the frequency response is of these egg crates? You know, like what frequencies do they <laughs> attenuate? You know, they might not do You know, and so like, yeah, those foam things, but yeah, you're right. So the general, there's two different things, right? Treating what's inside your room. Like when you speak or when you clap, it's bouncing around your room and like how to reduce that bounce is usually the what you're trying to solve there. But that has nothing to do with preventing your voice or your music or your saxophone, in my case, from leaving that room and pissing off (laughs) who's ever on the other side of that wall. (laughs) Neither does it have anything to do with preventing that someone who's outside of you And you know, outside of that wall, that sound coming in. So, putting squares on your walls does nothing for for that, but it will help the room
0: sound different, which may be a better different, or it might be a worse different. It just depends. Yeah, yeah. But this this is a super widespread misconception. Like, if you look at um the movie, for example, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a lot of that movie is set in this really striking looking bright orange room where the the entire all walls are covered with this basically like orange egg crates effectively. Uh. Um, and, and that's what that's supposed to tell the listener is that this is an extremely secure room where no sound will leave. Uh, right,
2: right, right. Uh,
0: that, that what that sort of uh material on the wall does is it um reduces the reverberations so like they're gonna have a very uh clean sound Uh, But it's not going to affect like what sound leaves the room. Right. But I actually didn't understand that movie. So like maybe it was really important that they get a really clean recording inside the room. Like maybe they were trying to disguise the shape of the room for anybody listening to the recording later. Yeah. Well, it's crazy.
1: I tripped out. Like I went into the shed after I put up all this um, insulation and it's this stuff called Rockwell. And it like totally deadens. Like if you walk up to your wall and speak... And I did this on on my Instagram to demo, but if you walk right up to your wall and speak, you're going to hear a certain sound, right? But if you walk up to a pillow and speak or into a blanket, you'll hear a different sound, right? Um, But when you walk into this room and you walk up to the wall, well, the open, you know, unfinished wall, which just has insulation on it in between the studs and you speak, it sounds like you've plugged your ears, Like it sounds like what you would hear if you put something in your ears. So it's like, it's actually kind of off-putting and kind of disorienting. And when I would clap, there's so no reflections in there at all that like, I could distinctly hear the clap leaving and like, bouncing off the fence outside because the the shed doors are open and then coming back to me. And so you realize that your, your ears place yourself in a space by those reflections. Like that's how it places you relative to like your 3d world is like based on differences in like sounds from your left and right ear, which is why stereo panning is like a game of like fooling the mind into thinking that there's stuff placed in space. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, moving on to tweeting the contents of Fred Flintstone's frozen carcass yes. before you dig in, that bulbous cretin Spoilers. asked.
0: Spoilers. Spoilers for our next topic.
2: Tweeting the contest of Fre- contents of Fred Flintstone's frozen carcass before you dig in. Yeah, well, you absolutely want to tweet it before you dig in, because if you do it afterwards, it's not nearly as photogenic. Oh, yeah, or you could, yeah, kind of do a
1: play-by-play. You could kind of just keep the tweets coming. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could do that. I mean, it's an Instagram story. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Does, is Periscope
1: still a thing? Isn't that like a Twitter live? Periscope the contents of Fred Flintstone's frozen carcass before digging in
0: also. I mean, maybe if Periscope is is, is dead, maybe Fred Flintstone had like on his person, a Periscope server that you could uh, spin up.
2: Yeah, and no, but I think it. you guys are onto something. It's it's not so much tweeting the contents of Fred Flintstone's frozen carcass. This feels more like a, a TikTok type of thing than a Twitter thing. Right? Each one mm-hmm. has its own
0: song. Definitely going to make Fred Flintstone's frozen carcass lip sync to WAP. <laughs>
2: <laughs> huh, it's it's like weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we <Weekend> got Freds. <laughs> We're having Fred's over for
0: dinner. Oh, jeez. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You're not the one who needs to apologize for this topic. <laughs> I mean, now I'm wondering, are we supposed to be, like, like
1: pretend tweeting? Like, is, Are we, like, role-playing? Like, there's his gizzard. Well, how
2: dead is he at this point, right? I mean, we're talking prehistoric. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's going to be real chewy. That's going to be, like, jerky. It's Fred Flintstone jerky now. It's... All right, I'm googling. It's gonna be the
0: tough. Oldest meat anyone has ever eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I just
1: found out also that humans don't have gizzards. Oh, yeah. we have jowls. We have a, a gizzard is a um, stomach-like thing that has f- that can grind food with previously swallowed stones and pass it back to the true stomach and vice versa. So it's like a stomach that can chew, which is pretty badass. And I kind of wish I had one.
2: If you're a Uh, vegetarian, it would be very useful. So, there was a
0: a ham cured in 1902 that has been eaten. Wow.
2: In 2017. Oh, Twinkies. Is that that meat? How old does a Twinkie have to be before it's really gone bad? I don't think they have a shelf life. They just... But do you really know what a Twinkie is made of? Twinkies and ham. How do you know it's not meat? Texas Twinkies. I just saw that that's a thing.
0: Uh, okay. According to this, um, this is what I was looking for because I remember hearing about this. So they tried to uh, eat thirty-five thousand-year-old frozen mammoth meat, but when it thawed, it turned into a goo, so they couldn't cook it properly.
2: <laughs> wow! It turned into a smelly liquid. And the Chinese say to that, "Challenge accepted." <laughs> Wrap it in a yeah, in a baba, and there you go. It's like a thousand-year egg.
1: I, exactly. Just put it in a tube and. Label it as some caviar or something.
2: You know, honestly, I I don't believe the labels when they say the thousand years eggs. I don't think they're a day over one hundred fifty years old. Yeah,
0: I want to see the certification. I want to send you to see the eggs birth certificate.
2: I want to see the archaeological dig. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? <laughs> I think so.
0: Ready. Uh Jimmy. Your topic is sixteen bits is not enough and destroyed music.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna whine about the CD and. I'm going to be an old digital cretin here, and people are going to think I'm a Luddite. Listen, you put your song on Spotify so you're part of the problem. It's true, true. So, PCM audio for any layman who may have wandered into the podcast is where you literally map... Yes, let's get to, let's define sound first in let's case about, yeah, our listeners right. don't know what well, sound it's is. It's not a question of what sound is. It's the way that the sound is represented, but then there's yeah, also yeah, yeah. the way that the ear hears it. But getting to... The long and the short thing. So, CD's record things with the format called PCM, which is literally just, you've got 44.1 kilohertz, which is your sample rate, which is time, and then you've got 16 bits, which is your bit depth, which is how far the particle traveled off of center.
0: Right, right. So, sound is like wiggly air. Pressure.
2: Vibrations.
0: Yes. Like pressure waves. And... What you're measuring when, you, when you're when you storing sound in, in, in a PCM format is you're measuring like how hard the pressure wave is pushing at that exact moment over and, and as it changes over time.
2: Yeah. So, what I'm really going to say here is not 16 bits is not enough and destroyed music. I'm going to say 16 bits is not enough and destroyed my two favorite kinds of music which are classical and metal. Oh, interesting. And, and the basic problem is digital audio. Noise in digital audio is represented, it's a function of the waveform. So noise, if you're listening to like a tape, it's this hiss and wow and flubber, there's a sh- on the tape that you, while you're listening to your favorite song. Hiss on a CD, it's not a hiss, there's almost no hiss, but there's noise, it's quantization noise, which is, comes from, you're putting that point on a 16-bit axis, it's not exactly where the point actually was. And what happens is if you have a very quiet area, something that's really quiet, then you actually have fewer bits to represent it in.
0: Yes. So it's
2: actually going to be noisier.
0: Yeah. This is... um, So we are talking about dynamics. Classical music has a a huge dynamic range. Yeah. The other issue is
2: that the more high-frequency things you have at the same time, So when you listen to things as a human, your ear doesn't actually pick up. It it doesn't your hearing doesn't work the way PCM audio works. Hearing actually you have what's called the cochlea, which is like this snail shell shaped thing with little hairs on it. And what happens is basically whatever that snail shaped thing is it's like we were talking about acoustics earlier. The narrowest part resonates at the highest frequencies and the Thickest part resonates at the lowest frequencies or something similar to that. It's basically doing a frequency analysis of, of whatever yeah. music you're listening to.
0: Oh, yeah. And you were saying MP3 might make this better. Like MP3 actually does map much better to your the ear MP3 hardware. MP3 is
2: a frequency analysis type
0: storage. But here. weirdly, like in order to for the MP3 to get to your ears, it has to be converted to PCM and then back into
2: right. frequencies. <laughs> So it's yeah, that's where the lossy really gets nasty. But so the issue here is, if you've got a whole bunch of different frequencies, they're not all going to line up, and you end up if you were to like draw this waveform perfectly, say analog, you're not sampling it, you'd have all these little squiggles of extra like what looks like this actually high frequency information there when you have two high frequency waves interacting with each other. It gets back to this thing where. So it's actually a function of the waveform. So things that have a whole bunch of high-frequency noise, high-frequency sounds in them, such as a string orchestra or a heavy metal recording, it's going to get a lot harsher. Now, Monty at ziff.org has this wonderfully written thing that tells you all this information, but then he kind of excuses 16-bits by saying, well, you can just add dithering. (laughs) And basically, he's granting to dithering this sort of magical property that... this magical power so it doesn't have. What dithering is, is you're actually adding hiss back into the sound. And by doing so, you're randomizing the waveform so that the quantization noise gets replaced, essentially, with a hiss. It sounds like a tape. Yeah, it sounds like a tape. So he basically says, well, you can just dither it. And my response to that is, well, you can just add eight more bits and make the problem go away completely. (laughs) And you don't have to dither. And everything will sound wonderful, even quiet.
1: Yeah. Have you heard of the one megahertz sampling at one
2: bit approach? I have not heard of that, but that sounds...
1: Remember the magic dot You could run, and it was like this mind blowing thing because all your all the PC speaker could make was like square waves.
0: Hang on, hang on. Was it the magic dot How was that spelled? The Magic Mushroom. <laughs> Um, I don't
1: know, it was on DOS. It was like Okay, all right. Well all right. of course the the file <laughs> also, name was four letters.com as like a, an executable file. Yes. Oh god, you're right. It was a no. Okay. I'm not plugging a website, dear God. Now this is <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd like you to visit my website, Timecube. Timecube.com. You run it at the command line. Zombo.com. It was working
1: by like a, a one-bit device, the PC speaker, and it would like you know, send the command to, to extend the speaker membrane all the way out, you know, to the right. full one. And then, but it would interrupt before it got there, it would send it back the other way. And so it would emulated playing like an, a four bit or like a whatever, probably four bit. I don't know. It was very crunchy and create and like not very good sounding, but it you could hear this audible speaking and it was like this song or something. It was like a song and a voice. I don't know, but it was Mind blowing! Like, how's the speaker? How's it? How's my thing playing this? This is crazy. I'm. It's only supposed to play square waves and it's monophonic and stuff. Um, but I think that's the same principle with this um, one megahertz sample rate at one bit, which was supposed to be like some up and. Co- I mean, I guess it was a dead end, but I was intrigued by it. I, I, I'm gonna Google that and <laughs> see what it is.
2: Yeah, I mean, and then they came out with A C D, which was this other similar weird encoding. But it's like, yeah, look, there's a very simple solution. Space and bandwidth is cheap nowadays at 8 bits.
0: Well, and, and, and like to my knowledge, like MP3s are usually nowadays that when, when people master their music, they're usually mastering at 24 bit and will, oh, at least compose and, and will uh, com- compress the MP3 from that file. So, yeah, if MP3 does in fact solve that problem, it's solved.
2: It doesn't actually solve the problem because. The MP3 file format, if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I read the spec. Actually, requires you to uh, declare what frequency and sample rate you decode back into. Oh no! So if you well, so if if it's, you make it twenty four bits, then you're good. But again, you need twenty you need equipment that can play that to actually work. But I think nowadays everybody has equipment that can do that. I think the cheap. Two hundred fifty dollar Chromebooks out there can do thirty two bit audio. Right. It's just at this point, laziness. I don't know
0: why. So I'm I'm coming at this from the other ang- from another angle, which is that I wish classical music had less dynamic range. I'm usually listening to music in a you know a reasonably noisy environment, and when it gets quiet, after like turn it up to hear what's happening, and then it gets loud the again. The timpani and- comes just with a boom. Yeah. And like you yeah. just wake up. <laughs> Oh, but that's the fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, riding the volume knob to not go deaf is the fun of classical music. You know, the human ear already compresses
1: dynamics. I've heard 10,000 to one because supposedly the, the difference between a whisper and a yell, in, if someone were to do that in, up to your ear, would be so tr- different and so dynamic that it would be psychologically traumatic. So we evolved to compress um, the dynamics already.
0: Oh. Yeah 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 and similarly with um with our eyes like we we see a much wider uh dynamic range of of uh, w- amounts of light than uh traditional displays can can show and you want to talk about bit depth using eight bits per color channel i mean come on, I'm so pissed that it's twenty twenty
1: and like I can see the little like shades of grays in movies like i'm pissed i i
0: feel <laughs> I feel totally. What's like short change on that one? Like or like a like a bad encoding where like the blacks get like all artif visibly artifacty. Those are yes, like that is someone bullshit. fucked up shit. Like dude,
1: like remember like the cool like, gradient. Like why don't they even do a dot gradient? Like can't they? You know because they didn't encode the color data like that dynamic data. That's why they <laughs> like there. But they should they should um dither it. Is that an encoding issue? Or is that a cheap LCD display issue? They don't have that data. That data's not in their movie. Like, that's why I've heard there's... like That's why they have HDR Whoa. now. Like, or what's it? You, like, high definition or um, ultra dynamic range, high H... Wait, high dynamic range, HDR. So they're trying to get more out of each, like, more color in there. And I think what they did is that they had so much bits to work with. And I think they just skewed everything, all the colors into stuff that's more commonly, like what takes up most of what you're seeing, you know, like brighter colors, in other words, and sacrificed like the darker negative spaces, basically. I'm guessing that's my theory. <laughs> and I think it was both. Yeah, that makes <laughs> but, sense.
2: And the funny thing is, it sounds like these are two separate topics, but it's really kind of the same thing. Yeah.
1: It's dynamic, yeah, still dynamics. And like when you're down low, when you're down in that little silent moment, that soft spot that like, or that negative
0: space, you know, maintaining that, like save that, preserve that. Yeah. Like a digitally displayed movie having like, having like issues with distinguishing between shades of like very dark gray. It's a bit depth issue. And then the high frequency issue is like a moire effect. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then there's oversampling, which I found out,
1: learned more about, um, when it comes to VSTs and plugins on audio processing that emulate distortion, because they, it's, it's like adding headroom, like bit depth, they're not, I guess, no, or like, it's like adding sample rate headroom. So like you crunch the numbers at a much higher sampling rate, you know, you crunch the numbers as if it was, you run the algorithm for the distortion as if it was 190 kilohertz or like. I don't know, much higher than 44 kilohertz. It's, it's multiplied right. out. And then that's that's called oversampling so that you use that amount of kind of fidelity to process it. And then you render that back out to 44, one. Yeah. And without that, then you get these artifacts like the Moray pattern, but an audio version, which you hear in Impulse Tracker stuff too, because in uh, sampled music, because it's like single cycle stuff. And you are always going to hear that kind of like Uh, like a like on bass and if you do like a great example that I always hear is like a sine wave or a triangle wave if you put out if you make a bass line out of that in impulse track or you know or on like that kind of a platform. You are gonna hear yeah you run a you know you just do a a major scale walk up and you're gonna hear this really high pitch thing that's also mixed in that's also doesn't seem to be matching or tracking any in any kind of musical way.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like kind of uh like breaking glass or something or actually uh my old Sonic synth on high notes, you'll hear this.
0: That's
1: if, di- if, yeah, <laughs> if dithering is off and oversampling is off or whatever too, particularly. But then again, like I like to turn that off because I like the way all the other stuff sounds
2: <laughs> like. So, so. Yeah. 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 It's actually kind of, cause I was doing the, uh, tracking back in the nineties and we had only you know, sometimes only 22 kilohertz full mixing playback. And so, You absolutely could hear those artifacts, and now that I'm older and I'm listening to you know a CD, it's like, oh, I hear those artifacts again, one octave higher, because we've just gone from 22 kilohertz to 44 kilohertz. It's just, it's just one octave up. It's the same sound. So I know what to hear. So when I hear it, it drives me nuts. Now (laughs) that artifacting,
1: you can buy in a VST and apply that to. to your track so you can make it sound like it's coming from a 90s era like sampling machine shit
0: it's awesome i wouldn't put it on your master channel though all right we better shut this thing down guys in case uh jimmy's daughter needs another glass of water yeah she's definitely not happy about this situation (laughs) yeah i guess next time we'll have to get to
1: why people say ah after taking a drink and i think we can cover that we'll get
0: to that in future episodes all right um Chris, if this is something that you want, where can people find you, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on um, Twitter,
1: and I go by Chris Del Camino. It's like El Camino, but it's Del like Del mm-hmm. Taco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my line. But, um, <laughs> 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 and you can find my music as Beek B E E K. Just search for Beek Chip Tunes, and you'll just go buck wild, fam.
0: Yep. <laughs> All over YouTube. Uh, Jimmy, if this is something that you want, we're going to be find you on the internet. I, uh, I'm i on LinkedIn. That's <laughs> about it.
2: That, that should be a topic. Off. What is LinkedIn and what is it for? <laughs> it's for job searching oh. and networking. Oh. That's what it's for. That's wow. uh, the I, end. I guess I've never done that. We've got an extra topic in, guys. <laughs> All right, guys. I, I I appreciate the time. I appreciate being a guest yeah, on this. Yeah, thanks server. so much
0: for being on. Yeah,
2: it was I miss fine. you guys. It's good to talk with yeah, you guys again. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do this again sometime.
0: Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!